When you become a widow, the heartache can be overwhelming. You feel lost, you feel broken, you feel alone, and sometimes you feel like the pain will never go away. I believe that every widow has the capacity to endure, the power to overcome, and the determination to create a new life filled with meaning and purpose. That's why I wanted to create a show called Widow 180. People tell me they come here for the positivity. They listen to Widow 180, the podcast, to be inspired. They come to Widow 180 to be reminded that they have options, that the pain of loss is not a life sentence. Widow 180 is about turning tragedy, loss, and fear into strength, creativity, and a new passion for life. My mission each week is to arm you with these powerful stories of transformation and knowledge so that you can navigate life after loss. I'm Jen Zwink. I'm so glad you're listening. Let's get to the episode. This podcast episode is sponsored by the Widow Connection Community, a membership community where widows come together to unite on a path of self-discovery, build friendships, and inspire healing after loss. There's so much power when you surround yourself by people who 100% understand what you're going through, who are positive and supportive in every way. Are you ready to open up your heart and explore what's possible for you in this next chapter of life? Are you ready to step into a new version of yourself, a fearless version of you who is ready to live the highest, truest expression of herself? Are you ready to push past the grief that weighs on you and makes you feel lost and tired and alone? Are you ready to explore different ways of healing? If so, this is where you need to be. This is the space in which you will thrive. Join us on our group coaching sessions every Wednesday night at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. You belong here. You are welcome here. Let's do this together. Get more information and sign up at www.widow180.com forward slash membership. That's www.widow180.com forward slash membership. Hello, listeners. Our special guest this week is Maya Tyler, or you may know her as the Bounce Back Widow on Instagram. Maya, thank you for being here today. No problem at all. Thank you so much for inviting me. This is exciting. I know. So everyone, Maya is an author and a widow coach, and she is going to share her story with us today on how she rebuilt her life after losing her husband, Jason. So let's go ahead and we'll um, get started with your story. Tell us what happened to Jason. So um, he and I were, you know, a young couple. Um, We were married for about uh, six years. We'd known each other for 10, but, um, you know, we were high school or uh, college sweethearts rather. And uh, we got married right out of college. We had these little kids, uh, two boys, and um, we were, it was Easter Sunday and we were, um, you know, over a friend's house, over a family member's house. And um, there, w- there was a backward relay race happening in the backyard. And, you know, I got the baby, you know, I'm in, I'm indoors, not outdoorsing at all, because that's not the kind of mom I am. Yeah. <laughs> so I am indoors with the baby. And um, my husband was outside with our oldest, our six-year-old at the time. And um, my son comes running in the house, my six-year-old, he's like, mommy, mommy, you know, um, he's going to die. And I'm like, like, what are you talking about, first of all? And he's, you know, a jumble of words and emotions. And he's trying to explain to me that someone had been, uh, you know, running and fell and had a head injury and, um, you know, just wasn't getting up. So I, you know, looked out the window, stood up and it appeared to be one of my husband's cousins. So I figured, oh, you know, if, it, it's, if it's super bad, then his wife will go out there and it's probably fine. No big deal. So, you know, but my son just continued to be persistent. He's just like, mommy, mommy, you know, he's going to die. And I'm like, who are you talking about? And eventually he says, dad. And I'm like, okay. You know, and I'm like, you know, with the the baby in my arms, I'm like, okay, hold my baby, somebody. And I go outside to see. And it turns out that he was running backward in a relay race that they were playing outside and had tripped over a child um, who was running diagonally across the field and hit his head randomly on a piece of asphalt that was in the ground in you know this person's backyard, and um, he was bleeding out, and he did in fact bleed out, and he was gone in about thirty minutes. 
We had called the ambulance several times. Um, the 911 dispatcher had told us several times to stop calling because um, I'm not sure if they didn't know what to do, if they weren't going to walk us through what to do, or if they were trying to tell us, you know, people were on the way. I wasn't the one calling. I was out, you know, next to him. So I'm not really sure what happened there, but um, I do know they did not get there in time. He was unconscious by the time the ambulance got there and had done all the scary CSI things that you see happen to people who lose consciousness, you know, the foaming at the mouth, the seizure, convulsion, all those things to let you know there was no more brain connectivity. And it was the scariest thing I'd ever seen and been through. And I was losing it. I was, you know, completely losing it. And it seemed that no one at the time understood my reaction. They were just, you know, thinking I was upset, like, oh, he's going to be fine. Um, And not realizing what I was feeling, which was he was leaving this earth. He was leaving this plane. I could feel that he was no longer here. And it, you know, that's how I was reacting. So uh, that is how he passed. We, um, he was taken to the hospital um, later. And, um, you know, we, I noticed we were going to like, it seemed the farthest hospital possible because the mm-hmm. ride was entirely too long. And, um, you know, when we finally did get there, there was, um, they you know, pulled him out of the ambulance. It was a sheet over his head. And, you know, by watching movies, that means that person is no longer alive. And yet I still had to wait another two hours before they let me know the official, uh, uh, time they, time of death and when they called it. So it was the craziest day, I must say, of my life. Oh my God, Maya. Wait, you had, so you had to follow the ambulance. Like you mm-hmm. weren't in there with them. Mm-hmm. No, I-, I had actually tried to get in with him. And I don't know if it was, you know, um, just my will. I could not will myself to be in there with him and, and watch this happen. Or, you know, or whatever the case, but my legs gave out while I was trying to get on the ambulance and somebody caught me and was like, oh, no, you're going to ride, you know, with you, you can't uh, be in here because you're like barely conscious. So I tried, but um, I don't I, I was not able to ride with him. And so, um, you know, I had rode with his mom um, and uh, could see him from, you know, could see the ambulance and see him through the the door. There's a glass door and and a window on the back of the ambulances. And you could see people just sitting around, like they weren't doing anything. And at one point they all jumped up and looked like they were going to work on him. And then they all sat down again, like, yeah, no, we're good. So I had no idea what was happening in this, in this truck. And um, it did not appear to pan out well by the time we got there almost after almost like a 45 minute, 50 minute drive. But so, you had you had that feeling from the very beginning. Yeah, yeah, and I knew. You kind of knew. You know how, yeah, yeah, you know how you know, and uh, I can say this, you know, to you, your widow, also, but you kind of know in the back of your head, and you won't let yourself have the complete thought. Like you won't let yourself go there. Something inside you wants to hope, wants to pray, wants to say God wouldn't do this to me. Wants yeah. to, you know, just hold on to this this piece of whatever it is that you've got, the sliver of hope you've got left, but deep down inside, you already know, you know exactly what happened and yeah, you just don't admit it. Yeah. And that feels like an eternity. Yes. Like that, yes, that time. Yeah. Yeah. It definitely did. Oh my God. Okay. So you had the baby and then the six-year-old. So, mm-hmm. and the baby was like 18 months, you said? 18 mm-hmm. Yep, he was 18 months. He was taking his first steps, you know, wobbling around, holding on to tables. So that's what we were doing indoors, watching him try to walk, you know. Um, yeah. And yeah, so that's where he was in life. So he doesn't have any memories of his dad that, you know, he can recall now. Right. Um, you said you did have a lot of family support right after a lot of family yeah. include, and mostly your parents, a lot yes, from your mostly. parents. Yeah. Did you move mm-hmm. in with your parents? I did. I actually, um, looking back on it, I feel like I did a complete, um, shutdown. I refused yeah. to go back to my home. Um, we had just bought a house and, um, you know, had just moved in and you were getting settled, um, maybe a few months before that. 
um, and or maybe no, it was a year before that. And um, we were happy and settled. And I refused to go back there because there was nothing about that house that I was going to be able to tolerate without him. You know, I wasn't going to be able to to park in the, the parking lot, to walk up the steps, to nothing. There was nothing about that house I was willing to participate in without him. So I had, you know, my family, um, I, I grew up with nine other cousins, uh, first cousins. So they all pitched in and moved my stuff into storage, gave me the stuff that I needed, and I moved in with my parents. I would like to invite you to get our latest freebie designed just for you. How to get your life back together after loss, a 10-step checklist. After countless hours of research, interviewing hundreds of widows, and through my own experience with grief, I have compiled this list of the 10 steps you need to take to put your life back together after losing a loved one. It's normal to feel overwhelmed and also normal to not know where to start when it comes to picking up the pieces of your shattered world. Here's where you start. You can get this free 10-step checklist at www.widow180.com forward slash freebie. That's www.widow180.com forward slash freebie. And you did that. How soon after did you move in with Effective that? Immediately. I refused to go home. You didn't even like life. spend any time. Okay. Okay. Nope. nope. I had regressed completely to, I don't, you know, to, to returned mail order bride. Like that's you how shut I down. Felt. Like, yeah. I shut down. I was in the bed with my parents. Like I yeah. shut. Down. I know. I know. I know. Mm-hmm. And thank God you have that support there too. I mean, something to, to fall into, you know, I I mean, I get it. It's not like anything. I tell people this, like, it's not like anything bad happened in your house, but your house is a home because Mm -hmm. of the people in it and the family in it. And without that, it just doesn't feel right. You know, yeah, it definitely felt absolutely homeless because he was my home and there was not going to be anywhere that I could go without him. That was going to work. Yes. And your mom was a huge help because what did you say her job was? She her job, yes. She um had been a teacher for a long time and administrator for a long time. But at, by the time this happened, she had become um she had been principal and all those things. By this time, she had become um the head of special uh, education in our county here in Maryland in PG County. So you know it was like she knew everything that I was a, you know, was able to, to have access to for the kids, um, for all the, the, uh, behavioral health development things for a child, all of those things she was well-versed in. So it was like the things that, um, a young mom doesn't know about what the school can provide, what counselors can provide and what the, you know, pediatricians can provide together as a unit was something she was able to help me with. But it was a you know a huge push for you know the uh, the coaching and and um and business that I created because there was so there's just so many widows that have no idea this exists and I found that without me pushing for it and advocating for my son to get the connections with the counselors and the you know and the school and the guidance counselor all those things I had to initiate even though they knew what happened I still had to initiate and advocate for my child and these programs are in place for them you know to evaluate them to you know have them uh connect the guidance counselor with your actual counselor and have the pediatrician recommend and you know and do all the evaluations and all these things but no one volunteered. No one know these things. And how amazing that your mom could steer you in the yeah. right direction. Because I did the same thing too. I mean, I let the school know. Um, but at the same time, it didn't really go beyond that. And you're saying like there's these connections between pediatrician and you know, mm-hmm. all of these other different pieces that fit together that I didn't know about like mm-hmm. how are we supposed to know about that and they're not taking the effort to yeah yeah let us I, know like, <laughs> yeah like for example you know if um my son you know wasn't eating that day for for whatever reason you know if the teacher knows that he's going through something he would she would tell the guidance counselor the guidance counselor would already have little insurers in her office 
and say, come on by, Justin, come and see me and, you know, have something for him and sit and talk and then pass those notes to his actual counselor. Like that entire network, that village around my kid, you would think that that would be something that would be done automatically. But I actually definitely had to ask for it and connect those dots myself. And then they go, oh, yeah, this is something we, you know, we, we know how to do. Oh, thanks. <laughs> thanks for sharing. <laughs> God, that is, yeah, that is definitely something that needs to be better known, uh, Mm -hmm. to widows with young kids. And you told me though, that you also, you struggled with religion and that people were telling you to lean on Jesus and lean on God, but you couldn't relate to the people at church. Mm -hmm. What, this is very common, but Mm -hmm. what do you advise to widows who they also feel that way. And yet they, they also feel a lot of guilt because of that. They feel guilty for it. Um, do you kind of coach your widows in that department? Because it is a very common thing. Um, what do you usually kind of talk to them about when they're struggling? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so absolutely. It's a very common thing. Um, because we build our foundations and our beliefs and our relationships on, you know, what we grew up with is being our faith, what we grew up with is being what we believe, whether it be Jesus or, you know, Buddha or Allah, whatever it is, this is our faith system. And when something like this happens, it seems like your faith system is broken. It seems like, you know, whatever you believed, you didn't believe that your, your God, your, you know, that the higher power would do this to you. You feel like you've been a good person. You've been a devout Christian. You've been all the things you're not like a serial killer or anything. So like this shouldn't happen to good people. And so your belief system has some cracks in it now because you're like, what kind of God would do this to me? What kind of higher power, what kind of purpose is, you know, to take away from this person's life who was this perfectly good person? Why would anybody do that? You know, and so you start to doubt your faith. And um, another thing is in the church, there's a lot of judgment. And whether that judgment is actually coming at you from outside you, you know, other people are looking at your ring and, you know, looking at the fact that, um, you know, they never see your husband or, you know, maybe they know what happens and they're constantly, you know, doing the sympathy thing. Or, you know, even if you feel judged with people that don't know you inside the church, when they see you with these kids and no ring on your finger, you're feeling like, oh, gosh, now I'm the stereotypical single mom. Whether that that judgment is coming from outside or coming from inside where you're judging yourself and you're being, you know, um, understandably paranoid about what people must think. These are all coming from how we were raised and what we believe in and what our core beliefs are and what our religions were before and our stereotypes, you know, were before. So what I have to tell people that are going through this is, you know, um, for me, everybody has their own path. For me, um, it was diving in harder. You know, at first I did push away from the, you know, all the the, the Christian everything. Like, you know, I, I just wasn't feeling it, so to speak. You know, I, I didn't feel like I was getting, you know, the connection that I was looking for. I felt extremely, that's a word I want to use is disconnected from, you know, everyone there. I felt no, I'm misunderstood. I felt out of place. Like, I, you know, I just didn't belong there anymore. And um, it's funny, you say people said, oh, you need to lean on God. And that's not something people actually have ever been able to articulate to me, the how of all of that. Mm. So, you know, I'm like, how do you lean on Jesus? You'll come here, Mr. Jesus, let me lean on you. Like how, how, you know, give me, you know, the, 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 the lean on Jesus for dummies. Like, how do you do this? Yeah. And um, yeah. <laughs> What I wound up doing was going into the Bible and, you know, looking for the answer to this question. And what um, a pastor, um, you know, referred to me or or recommended for me, he said, you know, there are um, everything under the sun is in the Bible. Right. And um, everybody in the Bible has dealt in some way with what you're dealing with. And so, you know, I'm looking, I'm looking, I'm looking. And obviously Ruth, you know, is, is one of the, the passages that people always take you to. But I decided to be different and just pick, you know, just go through. And I started with Mark and went through the Luke. And I decided to try to translate them 
to and adapt them to my situation you know mm-hmm. like in, in in um in um there are certain stories that to me were like oh you know well I can adapt this to what I'm going through or I can okay. you know translate this to you know what would it be like if you know I adopted what that person was going through as a widow looking at through a lens of a widow and I started blogging about it and um I found solace in it and now being a writer and someone who is um, more native to teaching myself by teaching other people. Like that's how I learned better. You know, yeah. um, like, I can teach you if I can show you, then I've got it, you know? So um, that was how I kind of tapped back into what it is that God was trying to tell me, what it is that, you know, he was trying to help me work through. And I began to see things in a more personal way, the way God moves. Now, you know, I, I definitely, as a coach, um, I know that there are other religions out there. I know that there are other beliefs out there and I don't push people in the direction of Christianity, but I'm not, I'm also not going to be quiet and silenced about my God because he's amazing. Yeah, I definitely share um, my journey and usually um, it it, it lands well and people uh, take that, take away from it what they need to, that this is going to be bottom line, a journey you have to purposely go on by yourself. It's not going to be something you can go to church and get from somebody who, you know, is telling you or is preaching to you or, you know, it's not going to be something you can live vicariously through oh she did it and you know this is this is how you should be grieving and and uh praising and and you'll be grateful and all these things and so that's why group help as far as group grief and things and it didn't really appeal to me it was absolutely a journey that I had to take myself on because I had to be the one to commit to it I had to be the one to ask God okay I give up I've got nothing else show me you and that's what he did. He absolutely showed me him. So that's yeah. the advice I would give for a Christian if that's what they're looking for. Unfortunately, I don't know how other religions work, but it's worth a shot, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, that's the advice I give, you know, dive in there, do whatever it takes that, you know, you, however you learn and, you know, ask him, ask him to prove it to you. Ask God to prove it because absolutely every time I've asked and given that advice, he shows up yeah. immensely, shows up and, and it's almost as if he was waiting for you. Like I was just waiting for you to tell me because here I, I go. Yeah, I'm going to show all the way off because <laughs> I was just waiting for you to lean on me. And that so, it's not, it's, it's not something that is necessarily going to happen quickly and you won't jump right back into it. Maybe it takes a little bit of time. And again, yeah. people feel guilty about that as well. So mm-hmm. give yourself mm-hmm. the time that you need. Mm-hmm. And then yeah. you found your how you found how to do it. So that was a really amazing path for you. That's that's awesome. Um, now you you also told me that you had these debilitating anxiety attacks. Yes. So and was that that was happening quite quite a lot quite often for you, right? Like, yes. Um, okay. In the beginning. <laughs> Um, in the beginning of the, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the journey, my journey as a widow, um, I was, before he passed away, I was already, um, going through some postpartum depression. Um, and you always feel guilty about postpartum depression because you feel like, why am I sad about having a baby? You know, and there's a whole host of things that you go through in postpartum depression. So having that stacked on top of, you know, his passing was just, it was my breaking point. Um, I was trying to, you know, at one, at one point I completely shut down. And like I said, I went to go live with my mom. I wasn't eating. I wasn't sleeping. I was sitting literally and staring. I was doing the complete shutdown thing. Like I didn't want to do anything, uh, for my kids. I didn't want to hold my baby. I felt like a complete unfit Mm -hmm. mom. And these thoughts took me into, um, you know, through the depression, they took me into a place where I began to have anxiety attacks. And so the anxiety attacks were so debilitating. They felt like I was actually having an active heart attack. So I would call, you know, 911 on myself, like, 
frequently to say, look, something's happening. Um, you know, all the symptoms, like my arm hurts, I feel like it's squeezing, you know, I short of breath, I'm faint, you know, I'm, these things are happening, palpitations, all these things. And they would always come and, you know, always charge me a million dollars and take me to, you know, the hospital. And they will tell, you know, there's nothing wrong with you that we can find. You're just having anxiety attacks. And I'm like, no, I've never had that before. That's not me. That's not a thing that I've ever dealt with. So, you know, find the thing that's wrong with me. And so in, you know, the re my research on trying to figure out what's wrong with me, I came across the uh, the knowledge that grief has physical symptoms sometimes, you know, and not only do they throw us into the, you know, the spiral of, oh no, more depression. Now I can't handle all the things that are put on my plate, but they also lead you into that fear of death and that fear of, you know, oh, you know, now am I going to have to deal with death? Am I going to die? And you already have this weird relationship with death now because now it's this close to you. It's, it's, it's yes. in your face and you're dealing with it, you know, as a real thing where before, before my husband passed, it was like, you know, yeah, old people or elderly people, they pass away and mm -hmm. it's peaceful. Mm -hmm. And, you know, oh, we're people just not me. I'm, you know, not something that even though I sat here at an altar and said till death do us part, I really meant until we skip off hand in hand to the sunset, you know, like I didn't, I wasn't at all thinking about death. So now that death is at the forefront of your mind and now everything is, am I about to die? Especially when your spouse passes of something sudden that comes out of nowhere. Um, the panic that happens now is doubled. So now you're, you're depressed about death. You're depressed about, you know, you're not being able to function as the mom that you need to be now that it's just you. And now you're about to die every time you Google your symptoms and have mad giraffe disease or whatever it is that Google yeah. says. <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's a compounding of fears on top of the symptoms of grief. So well, how, um, did, you, how did you learn to kind of not control it, but just, or even overcome it, but I guess, yeah, like kind of control it or what things did you do that? that helped you because, um, anxiety is definitely a, a common physical side effect of grief. Mm -hmm. So did that get easier for you over time? Did you kind of learn some, some things to kind of handle um, it? I tried everything. I tried everything from supplements to hypnotism. I tried everything and wow. yeah, I actually did try a hypnotist. And to this day, I don't really know if I ever fell asleep. <laughs> I'm not really sure. Did that work? Um, it didn't, <laughs> but um, <laughs> um, no, um, I had a, a really great, I finally had agreed to go to a counselor, a therapist, and um, she gave me some, you know, beginner coping mechanisms. And, you know, um, just a couple, you know, the breathing exercises and, you know, maybe um, there's a, um, an awareness exercise that kind of has you list the things in your body that are working and then you move them. You know, it's basically distraction mm, tactics. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. What I learned that worked for me was to be able, for some reason, to be able to um, immerse my hands in warm water, to, to go wash my hands. For okay. some reason, the act of getting up, walking to go wash my hands, and then the warm water stimulated, you know, whatever neurons, science words you want to go with. And it helped me calm down and helped me remember to breathe. And then, you know, there were the breathing, breathing exercises that are interesting for anxiety sufferers, because when you give them an a breathing exercise, they already feel faint and they already feel like they can't breathe. So when they're trying to do this exercise, or at least with me, I'm like, but I can't breathe. How am I going to hold right, my breath? Right, right. You know? So yeah. what helped me with that was eating Altoids while I was doing the breathing exercise. So mm. they open your sinuses and make you feel like you can, in fact, breathe. Oh my so gosh, an Altoid. That's genius. Yes. <laughs> it was a bunch of little hacks like that because I was determined that I got to take care of these kids. I can't be in the hospital all the time. And even though that's kind of a toxic thought where, you know, I don't have time to be sick. I've got people to save. It's basically what moms usually kick into the gear that we kick into. Like, you know, ain't nobody got time for that pretty much. So. Oh, toys, <laughs> that's such a great idea. 
It works for me. Again, because it's kind of like a distraction technique because it really is like a powerful minty kind of like it opens everything up. So you have to kind of focus on that. I love that idea. (laughs) It works. It works works very well. (laughs) Oh my gosh. All right. Mm Mm-hmm. And then yeah. around, around that same time too, you said you felt like you were split, like you had to learn to compartmentalize between being a zombie mom and this work you that kind of went you where you went to work sort of as an escape because you didn't have to talk about it at work and you chose not to talk about it at work. And so did that you felt like that really helped you, right? Like compartmentalizing these different, I guess, feelings to get through the, your work day or was that kind of a strategy or did you not really <laughs> intentionally do that? Or looking back, you're like, oh yeah, I did that. That was kind of helpful. Yeah. I don't think it was intentional. I think it was a defense mechanism. Yeah. Um, you know, at home, I had no choice. I had to try to be open to the kids about talking about him. I tried to, I had to pick up the slack and be, you know, everything he wasn't. I had to, you know, be sad and, or see my kids be sad and go through the grief process. I had to be the, you know, the, the person that was receiving all the sympathy from, you know, my friends and family that were constantly trying to figure out how to help me, but didn't really know how. So we're just, you know, around a lot and, you know, I appreciate them, love them. But all that pressure to constantly always be a grieving person is exhausting. Mm. And so I didn't actually stay home very long. Like I know I was supposed to ride out my grief process until I was done, but I was actually exhausted from always being in grief mode when I was at home, you know, just, you know, trying to be on leave. So I, after three weeks after he passed, I went back to work. And so you know, um, I, I went back to work, threw myself into work and a couple people knew about what happened, but you know, it's work. I don't have to talk about that. And most people didn't know. So I didn't have to be that person. And it was an immense relief to be able to just kind of put that away and talk about other things, um, be in tune with other things, be able to laugh and not feel guilty about laughing and having fun and being myself and figuring out, well, who is this other person, this, this Maya that, you know, has been in a shroud when she's at home, but, you know, is unable to be herself because I'm expected and reminded and smothered by the grief that's at home. So, you know, it was an escape. It, you know, being at work was an escape. Um, dating became an escape where I didn't necessarily have to be her. I didn't have to be Maya, the grieving widow. I yeah. could just be Maya. And navigate and figure out what that even was. You know, what did I want to do? What did I like doing? You know, guys that um, I hung out with or dated, you know, if I didn't say anything about, you know, my whole background, it was like, you know, they felt, and, and this is sad, but they felt freer to just have fun with me. And then, you know, and, you know, like we'd go places and do things that I had never done before. We go, you know, um, horseback riding and, you know, just all the stuff that I didn't just wasn't exposed to and just have fun, just ice skating, just be fun, you know? Yeah. And then eventually when it did come up, then it's like, dun, 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 you know, (laughs) and, and, you know, those people that didn't react in a way that, you know, kept that freedom for me, I had to let them go because it's like, okay, well now I'm back in grieving person mode. And now everything I do, you're trying to be sympathetic and, you know, um, not step on my toes or hurt my feelings because, you know, you don't want to, who could do that to somebody who was a widow, right? They feel guilty. And it's like, okay, never mind. So right. you know, I can't, can't be myself with you. I have to be this person that you want to treat like glass. Right. So, right, right. Um, and tell me what I'm going for, what I'm going Yeah. So, um, yeah. So, uh, it was the duality of being able to be both people did eventually get old. I did eventually get tired of having to be both people because I just wanted to be able to be myself I and know. be accepted for myself. So yes. you know, I wanted that... to be able to laugh at home <laughs> and, and have and, and smile. Yeah, at home. But I also wanted to be able to 
if I needed to talk about or, or say, yes, I'm a widow outside without feeling like here comes the, the, the pity party, you know? So yes. <laughs> I had to eventually understand and, um, and stand in both of those roles, you know, one, one side of the other and be firm on it and accept it. And honestly, the judgment, it was probably coming from me because nobody at home was demanding of me to be, um, to be grieving. They were, you know, just trying to be mindful of, you know, me, but if I had said, you know what, let's go have fun. If I had said, let me be me, they probably would have been like, yeah, sure. Come on, let's go. You know, if I had been okay to open up and have fun with my kids and smile again, they wouldn't have been like, no, mommy, it's time to be sad. Like it was me that was judging me for being sad. And, you know, in that place and in the workplace, it was me that was judging me for having this baggage that I'm hiding and treating it like hidden baggage. You know, when I just was free with it and say, yeah, this is me. This is who I am. And I accepted me. People had no choice but to accept me or leave me. And most of the time, you know, those decisions were fine with me, you know, so I, I honestly think that duality, like I said, was a, was a defense mechanism uh, until I accepted myself as both Maya and a widow and right. okay with that. It's It just goes back to how you're trying to process everything. I mean, you're in survival mode. And so you, you are trying to, you know, figure out how to handle going back to work and what is that? part of it going to look like for you. And, and like you said, yeah, the judgment that you think that's happening at home, but it's, it's really probably all you <laughs> that's doing it. Yeah. <laughs> so true. But you said that you found a therapist that you really liked and that this therapist told, um, told you something that changed your life or she asked you a question that changed your life. What was that question? That she asked me um, this incredulous question <laughs> that I felt was so simple and so um, so demanding of me at the same time. And it, it had so much audacity in it that I didn't believe that I was going to be able to simply answer it and be honest. And what the question was, was, well, what do you want to be next? Who do you want to be next? And I felt like that was an absurd question. Like most people would just say, oh, if that it was that easy, oh, I'm going to be Beyonce, hands down, let's do it. You know, <laughs> like if I could be anything or anyone, obviously I would. It's yeah. not that simple. Yeah. But what her, the reason that she asked me that was, the next thing she said was everything, and this is, I'm borrowing from Maria Forleo, um, everything is figure outable, pretty much is what she said in a nutshell. Everything has steps. If there is a way to be Beyonce, there's a blueprint. There is a, okay, first you got to learn how to sing. Then you got to learn how to dance. You know, then you got to, you know, meet some producer guy. But I mean, these, there are steps. They are there. Whether they are attainable depends on your positioning and your open-mindedness and whether or not, you know, you are creative about how you can get there. Mm -hmm. So what that gave me then was, well, if I can, if there are steps to be anything, what would I be? Now my, that door in my head is open. Now yeah. I'm like, okay, well maybe I will try to build yeah. a person, you know, and figure <laughs> out what I could be. If, you know, if, if all it is is figuring out the steps, then, well, I want to, I want to look like this. I want to feel like this. And that person, you know, figuring out that entire panoramic vision of, you know, what do you, what, who is, who are you on your best day? You know, what are you doing? Who are you with? Who's your best friend? You know, um, what is your hair like? What is your fragrance that you're wearing? Like all the way down to those details. Now you're opening. Now I began opening things in my in my brain where it was answering questions that I didn't even think I had answered. Uh, I had access to. Yeah. And realizing that it was really not so much simple, but that attainable was a game changer for me. Yeah. That's a great, it's such a great question. It opens so many thoughts and feelings about like what this future person is going to be. Yeah. It's a great question. And I want you to tell us about the book that you wrote in 2015 Mm -hmm. 
and how that came to be. Um, Because you told me you had always been a writer, but Mm -hmm. I'll let you kind of get into, into the process of how that book came about. (laughs) So it was purely by accident. Um, Okay. (laughs) So I (laughs) I was trying to write. I'm, you know, like I said, first and foremost, a writer. Um, that is not my field of career. Um, I started out, I have an IT degree. And so I'm, you know, the most odd and, and opposite IT guy you're ever going to meet. But um, there's a side of me that's very logical and very, you know, type A. But there's yep. also this creative unicorn writing, you know, other side of me. And I've always been a writer. I've, you know, entered uh, poetry contests, short story contests, and, you know, I have published in a lot of places, but I usually don't write under my own name. I usually use a, a pseudonym. Okay. So, um, <laughs> so I'm very shy about my writing. And the reason I didn't pursue that in college was because I was afraid to have a major that gave me a career that depended on what other people thought of my work. So I, you know, yeah, I did, you know, the, the smart quote fingers thing where, you know, well, IT, you know, back in the nineties, go to computers, computers is a thing. So I was good at it. So that's what I did. Um, and you know, it served me well, but I was writing to just kind of get some of my feelings out and to just, you know, be, it was therapeutic for me to write. And I was writing short stories, writing novels, and I kept starting the novel and every time I would give the give it to my friends, oh, look at this and preview this. And they're like, Maya, this is your story. All you're doing is writing your widow story over and over again. And I'm like, no, this is like a murder mystery. Yeah. The woman's husband is murdered. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, oh. <laughs> you know, so I just, I, you know, so they were like, just write the book, just write your story. And so I did. I just, I decided, you know what? I'll, I'll try it. I'll give it a shot. And I ran into the problem of, I did not want to write the sad part. I absolutely did not want to write how he died and all my feelings about it. I just wanted to skip to the part where um, I was on the road to recovery. And so I, you know, after him and hawing about it and taking months, I decided, you know what, maybe I will just write everything else. And so I structured the book like an outline and picked and choose which chapters I wanted to write. And in that way, the book was done in about six weeks. And um, I eventually, I did save, you know, the, the sad part for last and I did write it and I cried all the way through it. And, you know, but the rewarding part was once I was done that it was done. And um, I didn't expect, uh, I wrote it with no expectation. Um, I just wanted to get the story out. Um, I've chewed my fingernails um, about what my in-laws would think and, you know, well, you know, what people would uh, you know, think of me sharing my story. Like, oh, no, they think I'm trying to make money off of it. Oh, no. You know, somehow I'm going to profit off of, you know, somebody's death like an evil villain or something. And I really had to kind of put all that aside and say, you know what? God gave me this for a reason. And, you know, um, someone said, and this is a, you know, something people say all the time, your story is someone else's blueprint. You know, someone else is going to read this and go, this can be done. And, you know, now I have proof and they're going to, you know, they're going to be okay because of the, you know, you told your story. So I had it published and, you know, I, I published myself and, um, you know, it, you know, it was a great, it had great success and, um, a, professor from Johnson C. Smith University actually contacted me and said, you know, over here in this neck of the woods, we love this. We love your book. We love everything about it. And we want it to be part of this English class, this mass communications English class, where it was uh, put alongside Zora Neale Hurston's and their eyes were watching God. And I'm like passed out because I'm like, Zora. That is amazing. Miss ma'am like her of all people they're comparing my book side by side with you know all and I'm like I'm a homework assignment like this is this is my that nerdy is incredible. <laughs> that's so exciting this is my nerdiest dreams come true like I'm I'm a homework assignment and of course you know I went over and I speak once a year to the new classes and the book is a mandatory part oh of the class my God. awesome so amazing I'm so 
Yeah, so excited about that. And so that had been, I thought, you know, the extent of where this book was going, you know, I was using it in my coaching and using it, giving it out to widows and things. But recently this year, it has gone bestseller. And I'm just like, I'm a bestseller. Wait, tell us the name of the book. It is called Bounce Back Better, How to Win After Great Loss. And you can find it on Amazon. Nice. All right. That is amazing. I'm definitely going to put that uh, name and link and everything in the show description today so everybody can find it. So tell me though, in 2018, you shifted to coaching and you got certified. So you are a certified life coach, not a grief coach, just to let people know. So you don't counsel people about trauma or anything. You just help them with like the action pieces to move forward from where they are now. Yes. Correct. Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Tell us about the courses that you have and the programs that you offer and how that has kind of just snowballed and exploded in the last couple of years as well. Cause you keep yes. growing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um, oh my goodness. So, um, the coaching started out, I had our flagship, you know, um, map you to next to 60 day program, um, where, you know, I was coaching by myself and, you know, um, it was a one-on-one program. And the reason it came with an online course was because that's how I learned. Um, I didn't, uh, I saw a bunch of life coaches out there and they were doing the one-on-one thing and that was the whole thing. And when I took my life coaching courses, I noticed that, you know, the connection with the person was really just about conversations and that was great, but I wanted them to have something they could take away. I wanted them to have activities they could do, um, real life adaptation to, you know, to their life with the lessons there and to be able to have something to, to show for it. So at the end of that program, map you to next you, you actually create a map. So um, that was the gist of that program. And that program since then has grown into uh, mini courses. It has grown into um, all kinds of things. Um, We have a community on Facebook um, called Finding Next You. Um, It's a widow community for uh, widowed moms. And um, specifically, you know, you don't have to be a widowed mom to be in there, but the things that I talk about are about, you know, being young and being a mom and learning to love the life that you have after loss. Um, And it's, you know, I've I've taken on a partner. Well, I should say she took me. My partner, Viery Brandon, she's uh, the other half of we're calling ourselves a dynamic duo. And, um, you know, we have partnered to create more, just more for women, more for uh, widowed people. Um, We've done uh, Camp Widow. We've both spoken at Camp Widow. Um, We've done um, a show on uh, the CW called the Connect Network. Um, We have a segment there called Widowed and Winning. Um, we've just been all over the place and we've, we have no plans to stop. We are, uh, so cool. we've done retreats, um, and it's, and we're doing, you know, wow. <laughs> currently we're doing, um, workshops monthly. We've got lots of stuff going on. Wow. It's unstoppable. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> um, Well, we'll shift gears just a little bit because I also want to hear about your new partner, Danny. Oh, yes. (laughs) How did you meet Danny? (laughs) She's giggling. (laughs) So um, I actually met him online and um, that's like everyone's, you know, clutching their pearls about online because, you know, the rumor that there's pee in the dating pool is absolutely true. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, like it's, it's rough out there. Um, I actually met Danny um, a few years into my widowhood. Um, we met officially probably um, online maybe a year before we started dating. So, you know, we were um, uh, talking online and, you know, we've got online, we had this extremely friendly, really nerdy relationship where like we even 
got into like um, a rap battle that was written. Like what nerds on what planet are, <laughs> are, are rap battling a written word, right? So we just had this kindred spirit type of person or, or type yeah. of uh, relationship. And it took him an entire year to finally ask me out and, and meet me in person. Oh, but, wow. Um, oh, gosh. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so why? <laughs> but, um, you know, so we did actually go out and, um, you know, our first date was just the movies, you know. Um, but I think meeting him that night, I, I definitely felt like um, he was going to be somebody special. Definitely. Yeah. And how long have you been together now? 10 years. We've been together 10 years now. We have a daughter and we've built a house together. We've done all the things that people, you know, love to continue to ask us. So when are you getting married? When are you getting married? And I'm like, mind your business. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Well, I was going to ask you, like, is, was marriage something that was important to you again? Or was it just kind of like, you're thinking about it and maybe... Maybe, maybe not. There's, there's a difference between understanding and respecting and loving, you know, the sanctity and the and the idea behind marriage and actually wanting it again for yourself. Um, I, you know, like I said, I'm a believer in marriage. I love the sanctity of marriage. Obviously, I was married before. Um, wanting it for myself again was something that was a process. I had to, you know, get past the idea of, you know, the initial idea of, you know, burying another person. I know, of course, to other people, that's like super morbid. But like I said, when you deal with death that close, it's, you know, it's very human to think about the real uh, effects now and not the, you know, the surreal ones where you're all worried about love and and happy endings. So, um, you know, that was my, my first hurdle I had to overcome. So that, you know, was a couple of years in the making. And then after that, it was more or less, um, being in a place of, I wanted it to be, um, something that we were both absolutely unanimous about. Like, you know, it was not a doubt, not a, not a, a a worry, not a, maybe not me pushing him because in this, you know, world of being widowed, I'm, I'm sure. And I'm aware of this crushing, uh, pressure to marry me and, you know, make the family whole again, and maybe even in his eyes, replace my husband. And that's not something that he signed up to do. He was like, I can't be a replacement. And so until our relationship reflected him being completely different, you know, entity, um, and not a replacement for him, you know, he, he wasn't going to be, you know, gung ho about it. And I wasn't going to drag him, you know, and I, you know, I didn't want to be in a situation where, you know, I know, because there's, you know, this new movement about women proposing and all these things. And, And the problem with that is when a man proposes, you know, you know, he wanted you. When you propose, you will, as a woman, probably ask yourself, does he really want me? Or did he just answer me to be nicer because he, you know, liked me a whole lot? Like, you know, like you'll, you'll always wonder, was he ever going to ask me? Was I ever special enough to him for him to ask me? And I don't know if that's an insecurity that guys have, if they care, you know, if you ask them, but I know for a fact, that's what women are going to overanalyze. Right. You're going to analyze about forever. (laughs) Well, when did, when did you take off your ring that? Um, that's another thing. So I took off my ring. I was angry about, um, not being able to, uh, wear my ring anymore. And, you know, it mean what it meant to me, uh, then, and, um, it, it was extremely special to me and I was, I was angry about it. So I took it off almost immediately. Um, maybe like maybe a week or two, I took it off. Oh, okay. Yeah. I put it into one of those little button bags, um, that, you know, the extra button Ziploc little bag and the bottom of my jewelry box somewhere. And I had actually just because out of habit, I I missed having something there. I began to wear a ring that looks similar to it. And, um, it was bigger, but it wasn't real. It was just, you know, a similar, you know, ring that was just, you know, costume jewelry. And I had worn it for maybe a year or two before Danny actually said to me, you know, 
in a conversation we were having about marriage, he was like, well, you're still wearing the ring. And I'm like, honey, yeah. this is not my wedding ring. Oh, no. And he was like, yeah. <laughs> I'm like, if you had just, all you had to do was say something and I told you, this is not it. You know, my wedding ring is absolutely different and you've actually never seen it. So So here um, you you guys are dating and he's thinking that you're wearing the ring the whole time that you, and it wasn't like, nope, nope, nope. That ring, um, my ring, uh, my wedding ring was the thing I loved about it. It was humble. It was, and and I was not the type of girl to be like, you know, oh, I want a ginormous rock that's going to hurt my back later. And I was yeah. never the type either to, you know, want anything tiny because, you know, I, I, I want something that I'm going to like. And my ring though was tiny and we were broke and we were just in love and we were just, you know, um, trying to, you know, have the ring for the wedding. It wasn't a big deal, but when he gave it to me, the thing that was special about it was it symbolized exactly who we were to each other. It was, you know, we didn't have much, but it was flawless. The diamonds were flawless. It was only a third of a carrot spread across three little stones, but that's what, and it, you know, represented our past. And our present and our future. And yeah. it was flawless. And um not gonna that. cry. Not gonna no, no. this time. Um, but um, but yeah, it was it was wearing it, I couldn't look at it anymore and feel the flawlessness and feel the perfection of the love that I felt yeah. before. It yeah. was more you know, promise that I felt at that time I felt was broken. Now I can look back on it and says, nope. He spent the rest of his life with me. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry. You're Just crying. Like, oh. I didn't want you to cry. <laughs> I didn't want you to cry. Yeah. You told yeah, me that. I mean, that's said, especially because he said this ring represents us. It's flawless. Like when you told me that I started crying when you told me that too, when he said that he, he said Mm -hmm. that about your relationship and you guys together. And that is something you're never going to forget. You know, you're never going to forget. Yeah. So I couldn't wear that anymore, but, Uh, um, you know, yeah, I totally understand that. Um, but so, um, I don't want to keep you here all day. I have one last question and I always ask this question, but what (laughs) what is one piece of advice that you can give to new widows that can help them through the turmoil that they are going through? One piece of advice, (laughs) if you can pick one. Um, one piece of advice that I would give widows that are new widows, um, that don't avoid the grief. Mm. I know it's hard and it's bigger than anything you can imagine, but the reward, if there, you know, if you can call it that in sitting in your grief moments, is that each time you do it is one less time it's going to hurt as bad as it does right then. It's not going to be something that is, um, you know, it's a gradual process. It's not going to happen overnight where it isn't going to hurt as much. Um, and I wouldn't even say it doesn't hurt as much. I would say that you get used to it. You learn to carry it differently. It's just as heavy a burden. It's just as heavy a bag. And it, you know, you, but you learn to adjust, you learn to carry it um, better and better every time, every time you sit through it, every time you go through it, every time you allow yourself to let those feelings be what they are and hiding it only prolongs the healing, that whole faking fine. Oh, I'm fine. You know, and trying to fake it till you make it and, you know, refusing to sit in the moments that hurt the most. Um, I think it only compounds and prolongs how long those feelings are going to be so scary. You don't sit in them. 
when you sit in them and, and what I mean by sitting them, you know, sometimes people are like, what do you want me to just sit? You know, but sitting them mean sitting in them means, you know, take the deep breath, review how you feel about this thing, have the memory, have whatever it is, cry the tears, do what you have to do, scream, yell, go sit in the car, do what you have to do, do the things, feel the feelings yeah. and then reward yourself for going through it again. One more time, yeah. knowing that yeah, yeah. it's never going to be this bad again. Might right. be it's just an, a tiny little bit better next time, but it will never be this bad again. Right. Oh, what a good reminder. Yep. It's never the next time. It's not going to feel as, as painful. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that is great advice. That is good. Well, um, Okay. Maya, please tell everyone where we can get some more information about all these courses and programs and wonderful things that you're doing and where we can find you um, on Instagram and all the other places. Yes, all the things. So I am on (laughs) Facebook, um, like I said, in my community um, that we have for widows. It's called Finding Next You on Facebook in the groups. Um, I am on Instagram under the bounce back widow. Um, and I am also online. You can find our web space home. It is at widowsdobounceback.com, And that's where all the events and the programs um, and the one-on-one calls, um, any of those things that you're looking for coaching or programs or both can be found right there on our home website. Awesome. And yes, everything will be listed in the show description today. So you'll be able to find it there. Thank you, Maya. Thank you so much for sharing everything today. It's been such a pleasure talking to you and meeting you. And you were just the sweetest thing ever. So. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. And same for you. You are absolutely awesome. And I am so honored to be on your show. <laughs> oh, thank you. All right. Well, I will talk to you soon and I will see you later. All right. See you soon. Okay. Bye-bye. She is just so sweet. Here are the takeaways from Maya. Number one, Maya lost her husband, Jason, at a family picnic when he fell down during a race. Their kids were six years old and 18 months old at the time. Number two, Maya completely shut down and didn't want to stay in her house, so she moved in with her parents to get help. Number three, Maya's mom was able to help her get the support she needed for the kids through the school system, guidance counselors, pediatricians, and therapists. They have systems in place to help. You just have to be the advocate and push for the help. Number four, When her faith was really tested, she felt misunderstood and disconnected. When people told her to lean on God to get through, she had to figure out how to do that. Number five, Maya had debilitating anxiety after Jason passed away. Death was at the forefront of her mind and her panic attacks were magnified. To help, she learned distraction techniques and tactics like breathing exercises going through a list in your mind of different body parts that are working and move them, like wiggle your toes and wiggle your fingers. Immersing her hands in warm water really helped her. Just the act of like washing her hands and eating an Altoid mint was really helpful. So try these techniques. If you're ever feeling anxious, give it a try and see if that works for you as well. Number six, Maya compartmentalized her life as a defense mechanism. Maya was exhausted from her grief and being in grief mode at home. So she went back to work after just three weeks. And at work, it was like an escape for her. So she didn't have to play that role. She didn't have to talk about it when she was at work. Number seven, Maya's therapist asked her a great question that changed her life. And that question was, what do you want to be next? And that everything is figure outable. Every process has steps. So ask yourself this powerful question. What do you want to be next? Number eight, Maya wrote a book about her widow story that became a bestseller. Check out her book. It's called Bounce Back Better, How to Win After Great Loss. Number nine, 
Maya became a certified life coach and has created programs and courses and a community. The community on Facebook is called Finding Next You. Maya has also spoken at Camp Widow. Number 10. Maya has a new relationship with her new partner, Danny, who she met online, and they started a new life together. They added a baby girl to the family, and they've built a home together. Number 11. Maya's advice and reminder to new widows is to allow yourself to grieve and then reward yourself and know that it will never be this bad, that it will get easier. You can find Maya and reach her on Instagram at The Bounce Back Widow, also on Facebook with her group Finding Next You, and go to her website. We can get all the information about her programs and courses. That's www.widowsdobounceback.com. I'll put those links in the show notes today so you can find it there. Thank you all for listening this week. I want to read this message that I got from a listener. Her name is Lillian, and she said... Thank you, Jennifer. I've been listening to your podcast night and day, and it's been extremely helpful to me. Thank you for all that you do. And thank you, Lillian, for listening. I'm so glad that the podcast is reaching so many people. And just a reminder, if you would like to join our incredible widow community, y'all, we do some really cool stuff in there. We just had Rachel Stravelli as a guest speaker. She's a creativity coach and a growth coach, and she led us in a guided meditation and then some doodling therapy. It was so fun. We have some other awesome guest speakers lined up. This community is all about connections with other widows and finding meaning and finding creative ways to heal and laughter. If you want to be a part of this support and group coaching each week, you can sign up at www.widow180.com forward slash membership. That's www.widow180.com forward slash membership. Thanks again for listening and for sharing the podcast. Until next week, believe in the possibilities. Thank you so much for listening to Widow 180, the podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and you're seeking daily inspiration and guidance, you can follow me on Facebook at Widow 180, the community, on YouTube at Widow 180, the channel, and on Instagram at Widow 180. If you're interested in more grief and widowhood resources, including our latest freebie, How to Get Your Life Back Together After Loss, a 10-step checklist, head over to www.widow180.com forward slash freebie. That's www.widow180.com forward slash freebie.